bandwidth for JS Party is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Fridays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time. Head to changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM. And now on to the show. Welcome to JS Party, where it's a party every week with JavaScript. All right. Uh, so it's uh, I'm Michael Rogers. We've also got uh, Alex Sexton and... Rachel's internet went out this week, right before we were about to record. So um, luckily we were able to get a guest host in right away. Uh, say hello, Juan Pablo Bertica. Hello. Do I have to repeat my name too? Hello, Juan Pablo Bertica. There you go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How's everyone? Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's just jump into it today. Um, so b- because we've got you on, um, we're taking the opportunity to talk about a topic that that you know we wouldn't have had the expertise to talk about if you weren't on. Uh, so we really want to get into kind of JavaScript in Latin America and what the, the whole scene looks like. So why don't we start with just uh, you telling us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got involved in in JavaScript community stuff. Sure. Um, so. I am now an engineering manager. I live in New York City. I work for a company called Splice, uh, where we were. It's basically like GitHub for music producers, uh, and that's where we're gonna live it. Uh, it's it's pretty pretty cool. And uh, in parallel, uh, sort of like in my free time, I've been very involved with JavaScript communities um, for the past seven years, mostly in the spirit of paying open source forward. Um, I think I, I I never saw myself as a like someone who would have enough time to maintain open source software. So I chose to paint and create uh, open source software communities, especially focused in Latin America, where I saw like there was a lot of, of holes and in, in, in things that we could kind of bridge. So that's, that's what I've been up to um, lately. Juan, I have a question for you. Uh, who has been to more conferences for JavaScript in Latin America, you or me? You have. I think you've been in Brazil, you've been in Uruguay, you've been in Argentina, and you've been in Colombia. So you have the uh, the four you've you've spoken at the four existing JavaScript conferences in Latin oh, America. I've only been to Colombia. Oh, really? Um, yeah, that's it. Yeah, oh. I've only been to Colombia. I meant to be to go to Argentina. I meant to go to Uruguay. I think I may end up going to Uruguay at the, the end of this year. Um, and in Brazil, I haven't. Well, now I feel like a jerk because I thought the answer was you and I was trying to set you up, but now I'm just... It's okay. A jerk. I've, I've been to more JSConf Columbia's than you. Though. Okay. Oh, that's for sure. That's for sure. So how did there get to be so many awesome JavaScript events in Latin America? Like, I, I don't know that every language community has that. It's been, it's been pretty cool. So I think some of it started in parallel from different groups. Um, we've all... The, the, the biggest challenge that we, that we always have is it's really hard to get access to content in Spanish, to like high quality content in Spanish. Um, so I know we started b- before JSConf Colombia. We started BogotaConf, which was a, just a general software developer conference in in, in Latin America, um, in Colombia. And then there was there's StarTechConf in Chile, which is just general. Like I think we didn't have enough density to only do JavaScript. Uh, but then a couple of years later. Oh, I think JSConf Argentina came up because uh, Guillermo, Guillermo talked to Chris Williams, yeah. and I think it was I think it was actually the second 
event to pop up or the third one uh, other than uh, JSConf Europe. And he, he hosted that one. It went pretty well. And then once we saw that there was enough people interested in JavaScript in Colombia, we, I think we had at the time probably like six meetups, six regional meetups. So it, it meant that we could at least try to get 300 people together. Uh, and we threw JSConf Colombia in 2013. That was the first one. Um, Uruguay, I, I believe, was born on the same year, if I'm not wrong, or maybe the year later. And Brazil was probably around 2013 as well, or, or maybe even earlier, if I'm not wrong. Um, I think it was 2013. It only lasted a year, but there was also Brazil JS, which is huge. Yeah. I, I think Douglas organized uh, JSConf Brazil once or twice. And then Brazil JS is just gigantic. That's yeah, That's yeah. just... Brazil is like a continent on its own. Yeah, I think I don't know if it still maintains, but at the time it was the the most people who had ever come together for a JavaScript conference that that anyone could think of. Yeah, they were they were aiming. I think they actually made the purpose of hosting the largest JavaScript conference in the world. Yeah, um, it was like twelve hundred people or something like that. And stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a handful. So I think over the the past five years, um, and even especially with the rise of Node, there's there's a there's a series of events. So we have, I think, four conferences. Uh, we try to get some in, in Central America, but we're still trying to figure that. And also in Mexico, which is North America. Um, there's a great amount of Node School events. Also, there's Node School and there's uh, NodeBots events. So there's a lot of JavaScript interest. Uh, just in Colombia, I believe we have 10 regional meetups, which is pretty big. It's pretty cool to see it grow. Yeah, we don't even have that in Texas. We have three, four, something like that. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so you mentioned something that I'm going to kind of spider off from. Uh, you mentioned that it's hard to find content in Spanish. I, I was talking with, uh, like, I've had these conversations a few times, a few different places, and one theme that comes up that is very interesting to me that I would not uh, anticipate, like, uh, I talked to some of the people from Platzi or some people who had done some work for Platzi as well, uh, which is a... Uh, primarily Latin American like learning uh, platform for, for code. People trust the courses that are in Spanish less than the ones that are in English. So it's like the same person could give the same course in English and in Spanish, and people will listen to the one that's in English because they assume that the content isn't as good in Spanish. Is, it, is that still true? Or, or It is true. Is, yeah. um, we have, I think, we have a cultural... A pretty heavy cultural problem, which in Latin America, which is we don't trust each other because we tend to take a lot of advantage of each other too. So there's a lot of like sketchy content or like refurbished content or like just not high quality content. It's it's also if you search for web tutorials or programming tutorials in Spanish, the majority of stuff that you're gonna find is just very old, uh, outdated content. Uh, because the bleeding edge is written in English, and this probably happens sure. across to, to many like to many cultures. Yeah. Mariko and, and I have talked about this a lot. And so you write the bleeding edge usually starts in, in English, right? And naming rights come from English, and then as you had people who are bilingual who have enough time to translate this content, then they'll they'll do so. But you end up also having a lot of people who are bilingual who start with introductory content, so they start. Translating that, and then ultimately you end up with just a lot of outdated introductory content. Um, so it's easier to just jump straight into English and just default into trusting English. I see. So, so I guess why I brought that up was uh, 
it, it feels like the conferences that that you ran, JSCon Columbia, and uh, I spoke uh, at a few of those other ones too. Is is it was half and half. Uh, like the talks were half and half in Spanish and in English, uh, like depending on who gave the talk. And there were translations there. And Platzi, I think, does a good job of of having actual good Spanish content. Uh, I have I can't I don't, I don't speak Spanish well enough to do that, but that's what I've heard. Um, so is this changing? Is this something that is getting better? Like obviously, like I understand that like if someone writes a new React library in English and writes a docs in English, like you have to be able to speak English in order to like get that information on day one. So it makes sense, but it seems almost critical that like we reach people in the languages that they speak, at least on the long tail. So access is definitely improving. I think that definitely Platzi has had a huge impact. Uh, I think the first course I gave, the first JavaScript course I gave was on Platzi and, and, and that definitely had a, a really, I think it was Node. It was like writing an API Node and it, it had a really like broad audience uh one of my current engineers who is from el salvador in la saw my platzi course before he worked at splice which is just mind-blowing um yeah so those initiatives have definitely i think there are several educational initiatives that are trying to get really good quality content in spanish um and i really uh, like i support platzi especially because they they are really going after changing the way that people get educated in latin america the other portion is all a lot of the initiatives in Latin America are are interesting. I think one of the things that we did in Colombia that I'm really proud of is that we we've always aimed to highlight the local talent and not make it a conference where international speakers come to talk at us. Right. But it's more like okay, we're we're overall we usually have a portion of guests guest speakers right like we, we always launch with like three or four mm-hmm. guest speakers that we invite that we curate then there's a portion of international speakers that we have slots open for the cfp and then we have to have colombian speakers there has to be someone from colombia speaking and then we consider anything anyone local from latin america as a local speaker and then we do uh simultaneous interpretation for both uh spanish speakers and english speakers so um there's a really fun video of, of Alex's talk in Colombia. I think we should share the link because it's, it's, it's a really, really funny intro. Um, but the, the aim has always been to connect into bridge and not to have the colonial approach of here, we've come to educate you. Um, one of the founding principles of JSConf Colombia was that within the first five years, we wanted to have one of our local attendees speak at an international event. Um, and I think right now there's three of them who have spoken, uh, who are like attendees from JSCOM Columbia locals who have spoken internationally. So that's, that's, yeah. we're really proud of that. Yeah. The Argentina crew does pretty well these days too. Uh, like at JSConfs and things like that. I, I see, I went there and then the next JSConf, I was like, Oh, I recognize all these people. Uh, so, so I, I think it really is like the, even like outside of bringing, uh, stuff to these places, which is helpful and like helps give people access to things that they may not have had access to prior. But I, I think they're really good, like jumping off points for people in these communities to like go out into the international uh, scene. Uh, that's really nifty. Um, but I mean, yeah, it, yeah, I know a few people from, from the circuit that kind of started out at, at, in Argentina or Uruguay or, or Colombia. So Argentina is especially, especially Argentina, Uruguay. Like I think that the culture of the Southern cone of Latin America, is very different from from the tropical area, and Argentina and Uruguay are like 
you can see a, a lot. There's a lot of content produced in the southern end on Latin America, much more than in the tropical region. So I'm actually pretty jealous of a lot of the front end stuff that comes from from Argentina because they're really, really, really good at at organizing and and, and leading many, many things. You have like Ponifu. I think uh, you have a. There's a ton of React stuff. You have, of course, all the things that Guillermo Rach does. It's 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 pretty cool. So what what are the particular challenges of doing this kind of work in Latin America? Um, like like community organizing in general, because you've you've done a lot more than these conferences. You also do like one of the largest JavaScript meetups like in the world is in Colombia as well. Yes, uh, we've mostly tried, and I, I haven't done this work myself, so I have to highlight my my co-organizers because I'm in New York. I don't really do a lot of the stuff, but the objective has always been to give access and to include people who either are excluded because of there's not enough density in very tiny city to start a JavaScript meetup, right? You may have one JavaScript developer in a remote area in any country of, uh, of Latin America. So it's, we, we've started initiatives to increase access online. That's the one that's called Charla, which is like an online meetup. Uh, we've had like three episodes of that one, and, and, and I can tell you a little bit about that later. We have the local meetups, which is how we started. After the first conference we did on 2011 in Bogota, we started uh, Bogota JS, which is now five years old, and it started as the first uh, JavaScript meetup in Colombia. And then we moved one year later to Medellin, and then we moved to Cali. And we've we've tried to like motivate people to start their own regional event. So we do something. It's called like the empanada offer, which <laughs> is we offer to I personally offer to to sponsor the empanadas of your first meetup. I will pay for them. I will pay for the soda. I'll help you find a venue i'll help you like organize that stuff as long as you commit to have the event and find the speakers and sort of like adopt a code of conduct and it's worked really well um we have 11 meetups in colombia right now and between medellin and bogota which are always sort of like fighting the top uh for membership we have i believe it's six thousand people in total between those two meetups right now medellin is larger which i'm very proud of because it it's it's younger and it's spread out we've helped uh start a couple in venezuela uh in central america i think i've talked to the costa rica guys um it's been it's been pretty pretty cool but ultimately the challenge is threefold first content finding people who know a lot about javascript locally who have had the experience to learn and sort of then share it is really really hard um if you look at for example, Brooklyn JS or Waffle JS or any of these meetups where every event is almost a conference. The quality of the content is just incredible. And then you look at the content that we that we generally have in Latin America is more introductory. So finding people who have been given a chance at work to try something really innovative or to like do a lot of stuff is hard. I think we'll we'll have to continue to rely on on international audiences for the majority of the in, innovative content, even though like there's we're we're producing some good stuff. The other one is language, right? Which is which we try to fill during the events uh, by having a simultaneous interpretation and that sort of stuff. But it's always just challenging. You can't expect everyone to speak English. It varies a lot from country to country. I've also noticed it varies from community to community. I helped the Ruby community kickstart their conference in Colombia two years ago. And I think only 30% of the attendees 
required interpretation devices, where in JavaScript, around 60% of the attendees uh, require JavaScript. Um, require, not JavaScript <laughs> interpreter, but uh, <laughs> in the English interpretation. <laughs> um, and I think the last one is uh, sort of resourcing. Local companies don't sponsor. Uh, the majority of the money that we usually get is from international uh, companies. The local companies expect like something in return immediately. Like, okay, if I give you $100, then what am I going to get? Can I speak for 30 minutes? It, it, there, there's a lot of like the cultural challenge there. Finding a venue is super, super tough. I think Bogota still doesn't have, after five years, doesn't have a fixed venue. We've been trying to solve that. Even, even multinationals, in the people who are evangelists for multinationals in Latin America have a very different cultural perspective. So in, in our, I'm not going to mention names, but a, a large software company in Colombia loan us their auditorium but then we found out after the fact that they wanted to do a pitch like a 30-minute pitch of some of their services to our audience in exchange of it and, and that's something that we don't really like we we appreciate the like the necessity of sponsorship but but there's there's just some abusive practices that we're not really a fan of so that's that's sort of like the three angles that are hard I mean, that, that kind of stuff isn't unheard of in the U.S. as well at meetups. I just think that there, there's just so many companies that you can usually find some that are thinking a bit more long term than that yeah. <laughs> and aren't trying to do something so sketchy. But I mean, I, I actually have been at, at U.S. meetups where they tried that kind of thing as well. Yeah. You, right. and, and sometimes as an organizer, you ensure that doesn't happen. And then suddenly someone's giving a 20 minute pitch on your stage. And you have to figure out what to do. Um, one, uh, is there an upcoming conference? in Columbia, right? There is. So I think the event will happen. I think, no, I know. The event will happen in November, the 1st to the 4th of November is the dates that we have the venue. We're opening the CFP right now, today. So JSConf Columbia right now has three confirmed guests. We're going to have Tom Dale. I think some of you know him. Um, we're going to have Suze Hinton. Some of you know her as well. And we're going to have Elba, Elba Sanchez, who is a local Colombian rising star. She's, um, she worked with me at, at my last company, and she's been writing a ton of like Node and, and working with like AI and bots and stuff. So we're really happy to have her. Uh, then we're looking for workshoppers and speakers. We pay for travel. We pay for accommodation. We pay for your significant other if you're a new parent and we'll have we'll also arrange um, childcare as well so it's it's a pretty sweet deal we, we we're hoping that at some point we will be able to pay speakers but we're not there yet um it's challenge and the url is uh cfp.jsconf.co um please apply i think it ends in june 11 or 12 where we'll close the cfp uh it'll it'll be a blind cfp and i recuse myself from from judging because I know how some people write. Uh, but it, it'll be pretty cool to have like a, a broader audience. And just it's, it's been super fun to have people come to Colombia because we've, we've been generally isolated from the world for just some fame we've, we've gotten ourselves into. But we've had some pretty fun time. I think, Alex, you had some good food. I had more than good food. But yeah, the, the food was, was very good. I, I really enjoyed JSConf Colombia. 
I I haven't had a bad experience um, at at any of the conferences uh, in South America or um, or Latin America. So I would encourage everyone to go to all of them. But uh, so you're you're kind of only kind of related. Uh, like you started this a while back, and now it's uh, like Catherine and Julian. Or, or I'm coming back this year. Oh, you're coming um, back. Oh, yes. R- return. I re- I retired. Forty four. MJ. Jen Schiffer gave her last tech talk at <laughs> Discover Columbia 2013, and uh, was it turned no 2014? And then I said it was the last conference I was there ever organizing 2015. But this year I just realized I miss it too much. Yeah. And Catherine has also started spreading out. To other events today today she's right now she's actually at a, a scale conf which is uh like a distributed systems conference that she organized with a different team in medellin so uh julian and i are going to be co-directors this year we're we're i think the goal for this year is to get three junior organizers who we will be able to inherit the relationships the sponsorships the, the all the stuff that we've built yeah. which is what has allowed us to do that and do like a, a really nice handoff over for next year so that's oh, the plan. I just realized uh, as as we come up on a need for a break that the three of us organize conferences. Uh, I think maybe in a future episode uh, we could talk more about like the the organizing part and less about uh, like I think uh, the Latin America conversation was much more interesting. Um, but the uh, but the idea of like eventually you get tired of running the conference and having like. A, a known successor that can like do it with you for two years who can inherit those relationships and like uh cow paths is such a good idea that I really wish I did because if if y'all notice TXJS takes a year off here and there. <laughs> uh, uh just like JSConf US did, just like uh NodeConf uh does and 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 DHTML conf or wh- whatever. Uh so, so I think I think like a hundred percent of us uh seem like we we could have benefited from that so uh keep us up to date on how that works out uh i will that's the plan and and, i yeah i tried to do it last time uh but i think we as a like there's five main organizers and we like want to be like actually conscious of passing it off and not just own everything so that's the plan i'll keep you posted definitely Awesome. All right. Uh, we're going to take a break real quick. Uh, and when we come back, we're going to talk a bit about uh, all this JavaScript tooling that's out there. Stay tuned. First sponsor of the show is our friends at Sentry, helping you to find and fix your errors. You can start tracking your errors today for free. They support React, Angular, Ember, Vue, Backbone, and Node frameworks like Express and Koa. You can view actual code and stack traces, including support for source maps, see your errors, URL, parameters, and session information, and even prompt users for feedback when front-end errors happen, so you can compare their experience to the data. Seriously though, stop hoping that your users will report your bugs for you. Head to Sentry.io, start tracking your errors for free today. No credit card is required. I repeat, no credit card is required. Get started today with their free plan, and when you're ready to expand usage, simply pay as you go. Once again, Sentry.io. Tell them Adam for the changelog sent you. And now back to the show. All right. Let's talk a little bit about 
tooling. So um, Gina Trapani wrote a, a good article about, uh, you know, explaining modern JavaScript for ancient web developers, which I'm realizing I actually fall into the category of now. Um, so, which I, and I think you two, too, do as well. So this is probably not the best panel to talk about this. Uh, yeah, <laughs> speaking, <laughs> speaking of tools, Michael, <laughs> how do you feel oh, about that's uh, brutal that's brutal the explosion of them <laughs> yeah but, um, okay okay so so I'll, I'll run like a real thing that happened to me by y'all and and you can tell me if you agree or not but i i needed to i was curious about something that was going on in yarn um in particular we we, we had this issue where we're thinking about adding an install step into node core for npm packages and i went oh yarn wrote that too let me go look at the yarn code so i go into the yarn code and this is it's a command line tool it's it's just a command line tool and it ha it uses webpack babble flow and gulp <laughs> um, and like j just just like getting into the code just a little bit i was just like kind of pushed back and, and ended up just giving up um because i was just like i don't want to learn all these tools just to figure out like what this code path looks like um i don't am i just am i just like way too old now like yep. <laughs> do i need to be put out to pasture is this is this like the the new reasonable thing to do yeah i mean you mentioned those tools like they all do the same thing but they don't uh, like they like, don't but like it's a it's a command line utility like are are they really necessary well if you want to write code that is type checked then you can you don't have to uh but they chose to because it'll make their command line tool better for some reason for them uh and then if you want to write in es uh six or whatever and still work in older versions of node which is a requirement for them then you have to compile, which is Babel. And then if you have, like, if you want to watch that compilation or do anything like that, you can use Gulp and Webpack for separate parts of that. I, I, I don't see a problem. Uh, like, my favorite response to that is just, like, it still works without all that stuff. Like, if you want to personally write all your scripts by hand using only VARs and... Uh, <laughs> ES3 prototype methods then like that all still is compatible and you can do that um, but like forcing your idea of a baseline of tools on people seems arbitrary well okay so, so first of all just just uh, I'll, I'll argue a little bit with that notion that you can't use modern JavaScript features uh, and support older versions of node you should not be supporting 0.10 or 0.12 like we've those are literally not even getting security fixes anymore so it's like it's detrimental yeah, to your idealistic. community to support it no no it's, it's not idealistic it's actually like like practical like you but for a company if you, it isn't. If, if, no if, if if you're especially if you're a company i mean like but you are literally not going to get critical security fixes anymore like that's gone right, but I'll, I'll give you a real-time example of that like elizabeth and clark my wife's company has one engineer and what he works on depends on the time and i'd rather have him work on mission critical business stuff than him catching up to date because we're, we're literally a three person company. So it sounds like we could do it, but unless like we, we can't compare and expect all companies or all, everyone who's a developer to have the resourcing that Facebook or other large companies that have maintenance dedicated teams to do this. 
but this this is a false dichotomy, okay? Like if you if you've got some stuff up in O.12 and you don't want to upgrade it, fine. But you're also not going to get the newest Yarn installer either. Like no, like you're not going to get the newest dependency and have that support these ancient versions. Like you either aren't updating this at all anymore, or you're updating it and you're using a version that takes that actually gets <laughs> like critical security fixes. Period. Like I, uh, I don't I don't I don't think that those are like if you put out a competitor to npm and npm has a set of versions that it works on and you don't work on those versions then you instantly are at, at a disadvantage um uh so so i, no, no, I would new, new versions of npm do not work with 0.12 and 0.10 they do no they don't <laughs> <laughs> terminal new, challenge no no new 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 versions like don't work with 0.10 and 0.12 uh fine <laughs> Uh, but they did two weeks ago. Do we have ago, a fact but... checker? A fact checker? <laughs> a live fact checker? If they are still working with it, I'm going to go yell at Isaac tomorrow. Uh, like, that's what I'll do. But, um, <laughs> like, no, we, we, I think that we honestly owe it to ourselves, like, as a community to push people in the direction of, like, actually being secure and not being open to huge security vulnerabilities. And part of that is pushing them off of 0.10 and 0.12. Yeah. There's a different, uh, and, and I am aware of security vulnerability landscapes but there is a different vector uh there is a different amount of possibility of security problems when you're talking about a build tool versus a runtime uh application um and so if you only use node as a build tool which i think is a massive uh portion of people the way people use node huge yeah huge yeah um like half or more right like it feels feels like um the, the the amount of security vulnerabilities that you're you're you have uh, are vastly reduced, and the need to upgrade uh, versions of Node on your Jenkins server is is much lower than if you like run Node in production, uh, serving requests and things like that. So, I, well, that was a really bad example because like we we've had to upgrade Jenkins because of Jenkins security vulnerabilities like twice a year. So, <laughs> like, this is ah. Yeah, sorry. You you hit my, <laughs> my sore spot with Jenkins. Man. It's awful. I, I awful, feel like we're, we're about we're about two <laughs> levels off of the the actual discussion here, though. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> not not said, talking about upgrading it, Node. Because like being a manager and having the chance to only write JavaScript on my free time, every time like I said like I, I have a random site project. And I said like okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna try out. Flow, and I I want to learn a little bit about this type checking stuff because I think I've I've come to the point where I have to learn it. And I spent an entire Saturday setting my environment up because there's all these dependencies that I had not been aware. Like there's all this cargo cult that I had, like the the culture cult, uh, culture cargo. I don't have no idea what I'm saying, but there's there's <laughs> this sort of I needed. I felt like I needed to know a lot about the state of the JavaScript community to even get a tool working. And that really, like, I felt not, I don't know if old, but incapable of writing certain stuff. And, and it was rough. So I think for the tooling perspective, it is becoming less new people friendly, I believe, sometimes. Yeah. So, so th this is an interesting topic, right? Because a, lo a lot of the people who advocate for these tools say that it's actually lowering the bar barrier to entry. Like, these tools add a bunch of value that, that make programming easier. And... And then for, you know, a, another set of people, which I think we're representing here are saying, no, it's, it's a, it's a 
bigger barrier to entry because now you have to learn all this extra tooling. Um, and, and at no point in time do, does this tooling become entirely universal, right? Like not even all front end developers are using this exact tool chain. There are other competing tool chains out there, even so, for the front end stuff. So I think, I think there's two discussions here. I, if you expose an API that you document that has nothing to do with Webpack, Gulp, Flow, or uh, whatever else you mentioned, and and you use those tools to build that library or API, then use a thousand tools if that's what makes you productive and that's what you want to do, and then expose the correct things. If you, unless you're writing a Webpack plugin, like if you're leaking out those abstractions from outside, then I agree with you. Then you're forcing people to learn it. But if you just want to pull in a tool like Yarn, like it may be built with all that stuff, but like to use Yarn, you just npm install dash dash save or dash dash, or dash, dash global uh, Yarn, and then you can use Yarn. Um, like it doesn't matter that they use Flow or or anything like that. But so so I disagree. That, that's a that really the, good distinction, actually. That that is a really good distinction. Like you know, I I didn't care about what Yarn was built in until I wanted to like look at the code for some reason, which means that I'm you know not the normal user of that software. Um, but, but to Juan's point, when he wanted to go and use flow, it wasn't like he could just pull flow down and start using flow. He had to like, you know, move his mindset into this. I'm assuming webpack mindset, cause I haven't actually used flow. So I'm just I'm assuming that, that it's embedded into this other kind of, uh, webpack no. workflow, but I could be wrong. I was trying to get it with, with, with Babel. Uh, I, I basically had an existing project and I, w I wanted to bring in, but I, I was also using Ava. Uh, the test runner so it already had a config and I had to like it, it was just very weird um, I finally got it to work but then I was just not encouraged enough to actually try it out so I just removed everything and I switched back to my original <laughs> branch and I just said like you know what this is not the time for me to learn static typing anymore um, so you, you literally got it set up to learn yeah, and then you were like yeah, you're like I'm, I'm burned out now <laughs> I, was, yeah. I was really frustrated um because I, I could have spent my Saturday working on my bot, but I couldn't. You could. You chose to try to install something that was hard to install. Right. Like, nothing prevented <laughs> you, nothing forced you to try to use Flow. Uh, my curiosity, uh, but no. Sure, yeah. sure. But, like, it's an experiment for a reason. Like, some experiments that you try are going to fail, and that's, like, part, part of the deal. But, but I guess... Uh, the, it's an amortized cost, right? So I agree that there is some overhead to learning some of these tools. But if you learn, if you spend the day, I guess you said it took you to be able to hook up Babel and Flow, which um, there are I'm like... exaggerated, but yeah, a bit like four hours. Uh, yeah, I, 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 was, I would give you more than that. Like, the, like it can be hard. Uh, I would definitely encourage any new uh, developers to always use like a starter kit for these types of things. Like go find a React Redux Flow Babel starter kit and that exists and you can go get it, you install it and you run it and it immediately has all these things directly in it with none of the configuration. Uh, Create React app has most of that stuff in it uh, uh, out of the gate. And so like get used to using it and then like once you need to customize it, then you can can go into it. And, and like you're going to tackle that problem slightly differently, Juan, because you are a pretty experienced developer and you assume that you should be able to just pull something in and, and right, it'll right. work pretty easily. But for new developers, I think there actually are quite a few tools that 
can make this like instant and nice without them learning how to set it up. But let's say it even costs you a day to like set up Babel and Flow. But like, how many days do you have to use Babel and Flow before that like dividend is paid back to you? And I would say it's it's not that long. Oh right, don't get me wrong. The the return on investment is it was attractive enough for me to spend a day trying to figure it out because it it's it's awesome. That it, it's I think a lot of these tools have ultimately made me a better developer and, and not even having like any formal computer science training uh, the the fact that i got to a point where i valued uh, static typing and type checking because i i thought it would be useful for my, my product is awesome um if i were writing code every day it would have definitely paid off within a few hours um i do think that even as as more open source projects start adopting all this tooling they, they become less new contribution friendly and i think that's that's the only problem i yeah, have with it i agree um I, I think it should be a goal of any popular project um i mean of any project but it becomes a higher priority goal of any popular project to have like a run these exact things and it we promise it will work and you don't have to know about the build chain um and like separate like the concerns of building and authoring uh, and things like that to where like the code exists here. Like Michael, you're talking about yarn doing all those things, but like those are like parts of the build chain, but I can't imagine that anything yarn, like any algorithm yarn is writing for like dependency resolution is going to have anything to do with the configuration of those tools. Right. So I understand that like in order to get it running on your machine, that kind of sucked, but the actual reading of the code shouldn't have necessarily been affected that other than you might see like some type definitions here or there. Right. Does, does that make sense? So, so I feel like the like npm run configure or whatever would, would be like a really nice thing to maybe standardize or or become more of a popular thing to where it's like one click install type of things. But honestly, like it really feels like npm install does most of that already. Yeah. So standard JS does a really good job of this, right? Like standard JS is it, you can run it as a command line thing. It just works. It just works in whatever linter that you're plugging it into. If you have some giant tool chain, you just kind of plug it into one of those places. It doesn't really have an opinion about how you integrate it into these workflows. It's exposed in like a really nice way. I really like that one. That's yeah. for us, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I do want to come back to the thing you said about create React app and, and generally these kind of like um, th there is some kind of bootstrap just get started thing. And um, every new framework and every new library or every new big kind of piece of software that comes out has one of these. And they tend to actually define the standard workflow. And, and in fact, even yeah. people that that are, you know, really good React programmers that have been doing, that have built tons of apps that they know really well, still use like create React app to start out. Mm -hmm. yep. um, and there there continues to be this argument, like every time they put out a new version of create React app or something similar, where people complain about like the size of the dependencies that are included in it. And it's just that like, it ends up being just this massive, massive, you know, dump of code, which is always kind of hilarious to me because I am one of those people that that kind of care about that, but also I'm not the kind of person that would use create React app. So I'm wondering like, where's the overlap in these use cases exactly? So you just um, hate yourself. No, no, no. Like I, I don't <laughs> complain about create react app because I'm never going to use create react app. So oh, sure, sure. I, I, honestly, I honestly don't care, but it's like, yeah. yeah. I, and so, but, so I, I don't, I don't understand the argument from, from that perspective, but I mean, these, we are getting to the point where, you know, these are getting huge. I mean, the, the, the baseline to set up is just enormous. 
Yeah. So, so I think actually the Ember community nailed this before, yes. uh, more or less anyone else with, with Ember CLI. Ember they CLI did. is, is one of the best, like I did Ember before Ember CLI and I did Ember after Ember CLI and baking in Ember CLI is like an officially supported thing. Like the docs for Ember have Ember CLI usage, uh, to where like, uh, you don't have to know how to create a new file because it, you can just Ember new up uh, a a new file and you can run the test through it and you can install things through it and it can check extra things that NPM doesn't check and you can do add-ons. Like the whole ecosystem can be built into this tool. And I think that like far and beyond even create React app, like that ecosystem is one that people can instantly spin up and do with with very little trouble uh until they want to upgrade it which is its own problem with with those bootstrap things because when you're generating files it becomes very hard to then upgrade the runner of those files that generates new types i mean they, they have good strategies but uh it, it's a hard problem um so but i'm with you with that because like ember cli is to me the, the the factor example of like how these tools should work um but I, what I respect from Ember CLI is that they have a vision, and they had a vision, there and they like implemented it across add-ons and across templates, and all like all this stuff just works. But I've had the opposite experience, and I know like the Angular Angular CLI is still an RC candidate. But I've come to the point where like I expect so many things to actually be done by this, and it just doesn't work. We've struggled a lot with the at Splice, even having people dedicated at just fixing some problems with getting some of this stuff working because once you have to do like AOT, because if not, you're shipping a giant, uh, right. like either you're doing tree shaking or you're doing, or, or you want to like get a faster response time on, on your shipped build. It gets super, super frustrating. So it's one of those things that if it not, if it doesn't work properly, then I'd rather just not have it at all. Yeah. Uh, like the create react app, like eject stuff, I think is a good idea for those situations to where, you always have a way of just like busting out of the the thing. It writes the configuration files that you already have and then uh, says you can figure it out from here. But that's when updates become hard. So yeah, I, I think the thing that the Ember community accidentally really nailed is, is that um, the community bought into the tool. And since it's officially supported, when you write an add-on or when you write a third-party thing, it's your job to integrate it with Ember CLI rather than create React app, which has to like manage all of its own dependencies and say like, all right, we will pull these in and update them as they come in and say like, and, and then if someone else is using create React app and they want to use, you know, a third party library that, that isn't compatible, then they have to bust out no matter what. So, so the flipping the responsibility of compatibility to the like third party author, I think is a, is a solid community idea. Uh, also writing docs with it because it's kind of best for new developers, I think docs are critical here. So all the docs for, for React are still just open this file, write JSX directly in it, and, and try to run it in this way or that way. Whereas the Ember docs say like, npm install Ember CLI, and then uh, run these commands through Ember CLI. So I would love the, 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 Ember, the React community to switch the docs to default to create React app if it, if it became a, an official thing. And I like, there are, problems with that and, and more considerations than me just saying that but I, I think that's a really nice initial experience and on that bit of advice uh, we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to get into the project of the week stay tuned hey friends I'm dropping the background music on this break because I want you to completely focus on what I'm about to tell you I want to tell you about our friends at Hired 
We've been hearing lots of great things about them and their process to help developers find great jobs. So we reached out to them and guess what? They were excited to work with us and we partnered with Hired because they're different. They're an intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract jobs in engineering, development, design, product management, and even data science. Here's how it works. Instead of endlessly applying to companies hoping for the best, Hired puts you in full control of when and how you connect with interesting opportunities. After you complete one simple application, top employers apply to hire you. Over a four-week time frame, you'll receive personalized interview requests, upfront salary information, and all this will help you to make better, more informed decisions about your next steps towards the opportunities you like to pursue. And the best part is Hired is free. It won't cost you anything. Even better, they pay you to get hired. Head to Hired.com slash changelog. Don't Google it. This URL is the only way to double that hiring bonus. Once again, Hired.com slash changelog. And now back to the show. So now we're going to get into the project of the week. Since once here, I want to continue to you know embarrass him and call him out a little bit. So you you wrote this great guide uh, called the Collaboration Guides. It's just on your GitHub. Um, and I want to feature this as the project of the week because it's, it's awesome. Um, it's, it's literally just a guide to help people collaborate when they're in remote teams. Um, and I think, you know, these are problems that every company that ever does some amount of remote working runs into. Um, and this is really the kind of the best just breakdown of like, use these projects. (laughs) Like, you know, here's a a nice diagram for like how to get a hold of somebody (laughs) without like annoying them. (laughs) It's really good. Thank you. Now I'm blushing over here. Uh, <laughs> so why did you write this? It it came uh, from like the real struggle that we were having at at, at Ride. Uh, so basically, seeing the rest of the company try to adapt to the fact that engineering was completely distributed just motivated me to make sure. So these guides had two purposes: first, telling engineering engineering how I expected them to communicate and to collaborate, sort of like the default of our values, and then. We shared this document to everyone else in the company, basically telling them, this is how we work. And if you need us, uh, please adapt to this because the sort of the constant interruption or the, the Slack just channeling all the time or the DMs, just the, the, the missed expectations meant that I had sort of like do a little bit more of a, the active management, but it came out really well. A lot of it is, of course, like inspired by open source way of working. But it was mostly to just define the culture of how we communicated. And it, it, it turned out pretty good. I, I've applied the majority of this stuff at Splice now. And it's it's worked really well, especially like you'll probably see me every now and then tweet about like, please don't use at here all the time or don't abuse it. Because it's just one of the most challenging things with distributed teams or like hybrid teams is the constant interrupting, uh, which is just like an open office just being touched in the shoulder like hey can you look at this and you just break the entire flow so that was the inspiration and a few people have forked it i think there's actually i've seen some better or more thorough ones i believe i forgot the one i think it's lena lena's son she has a broader one that she did uh, for her company i'll find the link and i'll share it it was even more detailed than mine so it's it's pretty cool to have just written that and open it up and see how people react to it so when I hear people talk about, you know, having remote people and remote teams, they, they tend to bring it up in this context of like, oh, you can just hire these really good people that are somewhere else. Um, and I've worked at a lot of companies that have done this. 
And it hasn't worked out very well when they have a few remote people, but still like an office, right? <laughs> or, you know, they're, they're still like centralizing decision-making somewhere. So is, is your company laid out where all of engineering is distributed? That's just the, the way that everybody works? Or are there like a few key people in the office? So, so at Splice right now, we have an engineering office in Santa Monica, California. Uh, and that's engineering only. That's where the CTO is. The CTO and founder, Matt uh, Amanetti, is there. And we have uh, a, two Q engineers, uh, two backend engineers, and, and, and Matt. Then the rest of engineering is distributed between Latin America and the US. And I am consciously, and like sort of on purpose, not hiring anyone in New York for engineering to force the rest of the company to act distributed because we do have the entire product team, the entire business team in New York in office. And the, the reason why people think that being co-located is better is because we just get lazy around communication and just being around people. Everyone tends up finding out about the stuff that's going on in the company. But when you have one person out of the office and then you're actually remote, you have like distributed, uh, you have to do a conscious effort of keeping everyone in the loop. So I want to keep that until we grow. Right now we're 12 engineers or like probably around 20 to 25, I'd be open to having people in, in the office. But, but I, it's, it's, it's something that Matt and I are still trying to figure out because we really like the distributed engineering culture and the, the vision of like just letting people be adults and work on their time, work on their projects. Work on stuff. Um, if I ever, and of course I, would, I do want to start adding more junior members, that will switch my, my approach because then I'll have... Uh, I'll, I'll probably have to instill some really solid support structures for entry-level positions, and that will require having people in office at least very available for them. So that that'll probably switch a little bit of things, but we're it's it, it's a little bit too early to get together. So what what are the key kind of benefits of of having a remote team? Like, do you feel like it it adds a lot of um, more diligence in how you do communication and how you do the planning? Can I jump in on that? Because yeah. I have a strong opinion as, as a remote employee for uh, a large Silicon Valley company. Uh, that, that has find... a big office of engineers, right? I mean, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A, ton, yeah. a ton. I, I, I think it's uh, so one uh, talked about uh, not hiring people in New York for a little bit. Um, uh, and that, that may be an extreme case or whatever, but that's fine. Uh, Stripe, I think, has learned that you definitely definitely don't want to have one engineer who is remote on a team if you can help it no uh it's like a team of 10 engineers and one is remote it's almost always going to be like a, a bad situation so was so that like, you for a while though <laughs> oh yeah for sure like we were yeah. we were only 40 people or whatever so it's going to happen um but the there's some critical mass and i think we actually have some percentage number that i don't know so i'm not going to say one but uh of a team needing to be remote before the whole team kind of acts in a way that is uh, helpful for all remotes. But, but there's this line that every company uses in like their hiring words. We want to hire the, the best engineers in the world, or we, we have the best engineers in the world, or we, we have the, you know, blah, 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 something like that. And I always find it very interesting whenever companies that say that only hire locally, because it's like we hire the best engineers within a 15 mile radius of downtown Chicago which we are now considering the world. So I find it silly to think that everyone is going to be co-located within a, a short distance from your office. So like the amount, the talent pool grows. So, and this is not a right. It's math. So, it's just yeah. math, right? As, as you have yeah. a, it also, I, I like the, 
exposure to cultural diversity as well. Um, and it also remote work it enables people who may like, for example, single parents who probably just have to be next to their, to their kids sometimes. There's just a very different approach to to distributed teams that I like, and I philosophically like prefer having the adult mindset in my teams. So like people who are not just listen, you have to be here and this is how you're going to do your work. And here's all the lunch. So please don't, I don't like having sort of like pampered entitled people on my team. So I go with the other approach and here you're an adult. This is your mission. This is your, your job. Tell me what you need to do it and do it. And, and it, it's much easier to do so from a distributed perspective, at least in my experience. This is actually a really good point. Like the more that you can break up a workload into asynchronous steps rather than this kind of synchronous working mode, the more flexibility that people have in their schedule and the more kinds of people that you can get. There's a lot of people out there that just don't have the schedule flexibility to do this kind of stuff. I've talked with the the people from Free Code Camp uh, about this and how they've designed their learning curriculum so that, you know, you don't have to sit down or go into a boot camp to learn it. It's really asynchronous so that people who have kids, people that maybe already have jobs can, you know, follow up when they have time and it works with their schedule. Right. Uh, big shocker, Michael's advocating for a, an asynchronous non-blocking IO for <laughs> learning. <laughs> Mark it on the board. Oh my God. Oh my God. Yeah. And you know, like me, uh, you know, if you're working remotely, which I do, you should probably live in the most expensive place. And like, that's a good idea. So that's what right. I do. Uh, <laughs> like, like downtown Manhattan. Like I do. Yeah. Anyway. Um, all right, let's move on to picks. Time for picks. Uh, Juan, do you got something for us? I, I need, I need like five minutes. I'm <laughs> okay. I'll go first. Yeah. All right, go for it. Uh, my, I generally use maybe like a, like a one millimeter pick, usually with like a grip, maybe like a good Dunlop. <laughs> um, the, my pick of this week is another specification, uh, which is the CSS grid specification. It uh, recently went uh, into production Firefox, Firefox 52, uh, which was earlier this year, um, March, March 6th or 7th. It was kind of the last desktop browser uh, holdout for CSS grid. And so if you if you've built like grids with class names like the bootstrap grid or flexbox grid or something like that, it's a pretty different concept, but it, it roughly gets you a similar thing. Um, but the the difference in understandability, like there are definitely uh, the the long tail of things that you can do with a grid that are very confusing. But the like core use cases where you set up a grid, you literally just like describe a grid in almost a grid format in the CSS in order to explain like the column and, and row layout that, that you want. So it's it's really powerful, but also really approachable from uh, the usability, the dev dev experience standpoint, not just the power behind what you can do with it. Um, and for that reason, I think maybe don't, I, I don't know. I don't know if you should use it yet because like if you support mobile at all, which you should, uh, it, it'll be difficult to to get to work, but you can have decent fallbacks in place, but then you have to write two things, well, whatever. Uh, so, but look into it. CSS grid uh, specification um, is out there. There's there's a old CSS tricks article that's pretty good on it, but there's also uh, gridbyexample.com, which is uh, based on a book that someone wrote, like can, Rachel, Rachel Andrew wrote. And that there's just a bunch of very simple examples of what the different parts of CSS grid are and what like the different 
words mean, which I assure you are much easier than the the Flexbox uh, terminology, uh, and then uh, a bunch of code uh, to learn how to do layout and, and all that kind of stuff. So go go check it out. Cool. Um, so my, my pick is kind of interesting. Um, Bcrypt, um, Jan, who, who works at uh, Brave, put out this great tweet this week that was, you know, asking what what people's favorite security UI is. Um, and what I said was, I, I really like how browsers have started to move towards the the default look of a page and the and the default UI elements around security have gotten more and more strict over time. And it's been this gradual shift. So, you know, if you were using a web browser like five years ago, you'd notice that there was a lot of fanfare added to SSL certificates. But if you weren't using a certificate, it looked sort of normal. And now if you're not using SSL, it looks broken. <laughs> you know, it sort of no notes that this is just not a secure page um, unless you're using TLS, right? In that vein, they've also been, um, all these, these same browser vendors have been amping up the requirements to get a lot of that extra fanfare and and what that looks like, including um, starting to dig in and investigate some of the security authorities. So SSL security authorities are supposed to do a bunch of vetting of companies um, to get these upper level certifications that make them look extra good. Um, so not just like the Lex Encrypt, like just get a just get a certificate and encrypt stuff, but actually, you know, websites that say that they are from a particular company and have that you know, literally you'll see the name of the company in the Earl bar where the security um, information is. This is the, some of the certificate authorities have not been actually investigating those companies, not actually vetting those companies like they're supposed to, including Symantec. And the more that they dug into Symantec, the more that they realized that something like 30,000 uh, improper certificates are out there given out by Symantec. So what Google Chrome is planning to do is um, remove the trust certificate for Symantec and they will not be considered a valid certificate authority anymore. So this is like pretty unprecedented for um, a major browser vendor to go after a certificate authority like this. And and I actually uh, expect Mozilla to fall in line as well. Yeah, I, I think Mozilla's done it in the past as well uh, with, with a few. Like there was the one, the people who lost their private key or whatever uh and a few it's happened before but not on this scale and semantic is definitely a larger uh ca than uh others if you don't uh follow tavis o tavis amandi uh he i think is the one who finds a ton of this stuff with the different like security companies and LastPass and a bunch of stuff his bug reports are always very impressive and very scary in in how easily he constantly finds massive security vulnerabilities in security company things. I want this dude's job. That sounds super fun. <laughs> yeah. It's part of a, it has a name, like it's Google something. <laughs> I can, I can figure it out and put it in the show notes. There's like a team whose job it is to just like make security on the web better. And so that's literally his job is to, to like go around and find security vulnerabilities in the web. Nice. Um, staying on the Latin American theme. I was playing around this weekend with Next.js, uh, and I found it to be sort of a very refreshing way of making websites kind of the old school way, but with modern tooling, with React. Um, so Next.js is by the Zite, I believe, Zite guys. Um, yep. yep. Uh, so Guillermo and, and, and his team. And it's isomorphic, like an isomorphic front-end framework. Right, it, it's React based, but it, but you can do like some server side stuff. So it's pretty pretty cool. Uh, I was I was impressed with the way I was able to just get everything running. It's extremely fast. Although 
they do some CSS and some JavaScript code splitting, which was impressive. Um, if you want to see it running right now, if you go to Zeit.co, I believe is the with Z-E-I-T.co. Yep. That that's what they built to power that site. And then uh, in the spirit of of open source, they 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 publish it and 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 they've been moving really really quickly. And the the deployment also with now was fantastic. So that's my pick. Yeah, yeah, I'm 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 using now as well. It's and now is fantastic. And and just a bit of background for people that aren't aware, uh, Guillermo also wrote Socket.io, uh, which kind of made WebSockets in real time usable in the early Node.js days. So, really, like long time, uh, impressive figure in creating beautiful, easy to use uh, JavaScript APIs. Yeah, he he also did JSConf Argentina. Uh, right. Yeah, I I went to JSConf Argentina and I was asking if. If anyone knew where Guillermo was, um, and they had no idea what I was saying, and I remembered that <laughs> the the double L uh, in in Argentina is sh instead of yeah or whatever. So Guillermo. Guillermo. Yeah. Yeah, and you have to say Guillermo instead of Guillermo. Guillermo. Like they, they literally had no idea what I was saying. Uh, as a callback to my thing, Project Zero, uh, Google's Project Zero is, is the security kind of team that that I was talking about. But that might be all. Yep, that's all the picks. Thanks for tuning in. Um, if you have any suggestions for show topics for us to take on, you can head over to uh, github.com slash the changelog slash JS party and log an issue or send a PR uh, with great new topics for us to check out. Uh, record live on Fridays so you can listen to the live stream and pop into the Slack as well. Rate us on iTunes to get the word out. And uh, that's all. Thanks, everybody, for showing up. Thanks for having me, too. And a shout out to Rachel. And her internet. <laughs> can we get, can we get a can we get a sample from the board for Rachel? Can we get a cat hair sample? Just a, oh yes. A, <laughs> yeah. Is it like a is it like a? Hold on, I have cat hair in my mouth. Um, oh wait, that happened on the Gilmore Girls. I know what that is. Oh, <laughs> that's amazing. Oh, brilliant. We live in the future. <laughs> See y'all next week. All right, that wraps up this episode of JS Party. Tune in live on Fridays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelog.com live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the show at the changelog.com community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM. Special thanks to our sponsors, Century and Hired. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to fastly.com to learn more. Also, thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for the awesome beats. We'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening.